0: There's so much we can learn about ourselves when we think about trees. Did you know that in some one, God says you shall be like a tree? When we follow Jesus, it begins when we are like a tiny seed or a sapling, firmly planted and too weak to stand on its own. As we grow up in the truth, we send our roots down. They keep us fed and strong. But beware, becoming what God created us to be isn't always easy. They are bad forces that work against us and it takes faith and discipline to get through them. But once you mature and discover your gifts, you grow fruit. Delicious fruit that you can share with everyone around you. And there's nothing more beautiful than watching how your life, which started out as a little seed, can multiply into the lives of others. This could be you, a majestic tree, going deep growing wide, living tall, and bearing lots and lots of fruit.
1: This could be you! you can be like a tree. We've been going through this sermon series on spiritual formation. We've made it to rule nine at this point in our series. We're so excited about that. We're continuing what we're calling the maturing phase of spiritual formation. And that's an interesting word, right? What does it really mean to be mature? A lot of people don't agree exactly on that particular definition of maturity. But our question is, what do the scriptures say about maturity? And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about the maturity of plants. Uh, it's going to get warmer this week. Thank God. I think today might be the last cold day of the year, and um, we're looking forward to some warmer weather, and uh, I was thinking about springtime. Last spring, so Julie and I got some planters for our patio, and so we went to this nursery, and and, um, I don't have a green thumb. Typically, uh, whatever I do outside in the garden or in the lawn, or it just doesn't doesn't work out. It's just um, I don't have that spiritual gift, but um, this guy at the nursery was saying, here's this thing called a self-watering plant. You really can't go wrong. You just have to stick this thing in the sun, and you can forget to water it a lot just once in a while, make sure that there's water in there. I think this is the plant for you. And sure enough, it did really well all season long into the summer, into the fall. And so, uh, you know, basically the guy told us, if you just cover these these simple, basic things, water, sunlight, that will pretty much take care of everything else. In terms of plant life, uh, that that does cover everything. And the flip side is true, right? If you don't cover the basic things, then, then it really doesn't matter uh, what else you do. It's It's A total lost cause. Uh, So today, at this point in the sermon series, uh, we're going to see that Jesus taught us something very similar to that principle. Essentially, he says, I want you, my followers, to worry about this one thing, this one basic thing, and it pretty much covers everything, this one thing. And if you do this one thing, your spiritual formation will flourish and mature and grow. And, And if you don't do this one thing, your spiritual maturity is kind of a lost cause. And of course, what we're talking about is that one thing of love. If you have your workbook, turn to 133 in uh, your workbook. We do have extras. If you don't have one, please pick one up after the service. Come see me. We'll get you a workbook. Um, You can follow along even if you don't have one, though. Rule number nine in this series is just simply the rule that says, learn to love or the rest won't matter. Learn to love or the rest won't matter. This is very important to our Lord Jesus in terms of our spiritual maturity. Now, why is that? Why does he take this one characteristic of love and make that like the defining mark of following uh, him? And maybe more importantly, a question we should ask ourselves is, why is this so difficult? Why, Why is it so hard for us to follow this one command? What gets in the way there? And so for today's text, we to look at a famous uh, story. It's found in Luke chapter 10. You're probably familiar with this story, but I want to try to encourage you to look at it with fresh eyes, if you will, because it is such a familiar uh, passage of Scripture. But Luke chapter 10 uh, is that well-known story of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, For me personally, I'm very indebted to one of my professors, Dr. Mark Young, who's now the president of Denver Seminary, for his understanding of this parable and how this thing works technically. And so I want to just share this message with you that I'm calling the Mark of Love with three different movements. The first thing that you're going to see is the situation, then you're going to see the story, and then you're going to see the summons to us all. The situation, the story, and the summons to us all. Why don't we pause for a second and pray and ask for the Lord's blessing on our time. Would you pray with me? God, we want to be mature, growing, flourishing followers of you, but we confess that we need your help. Uh, Open us up to your word today that we might better understand, might better be able to live out your great call upon us towards spiritual maturity and love in the Christian life. And we ask that for Christ's sake and for his reputation. Amen. A quick word about context in Luke chapter 10, because we're jumping in the middle of a book. So in Luke chapter 10, at this point in the story of the life of Jesus, his ministry is taking off. And everywhere Jesus went, his reputation would have preceded him. Uh, But Jesus has these little annoying habits that he's developed. He's uh, interpreting Scripture a little differently than the religious leaders are interpreting Scripture. He's saying things like, you've heard it said, but I say to you, and nobody else had the audacity to talk like that. But this is how Jesus is talking. And not only that, but he's extremely popular amongst the crowd. And so he has a lot of followers. His teaching is catching on. And furthermore, Jesus is doing miracles, and none of the other religious leaders or Pharisees are doing miracles. And so there's this tension that's building in the Gospel of Luke. And the tension has to do with authority. Who really has the authority around here? And so with that context, we're going to jump in to chapter 10 of the Gospel of Luke and pick it up with verse 25. If you're ready, say amen. Okay, it says this. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life. Now the expert in the law of God in this context would have been uh, part of the leadership group that was inside of the Pharisaic movement. And so this is a Pharisee. Now as soon as I say the word Pharisee, you guys, you think bad guy. But back in Jesus's time in the first century, he would have not been viewed as the bad guy. The Pharisees They had this way of thought. They had a a way of life. They were strongly committed to God's law, to God's Torah. They believed that that law should be interpreted very literally. The Pharisees were known as the conservatives of their generation. And so here's this lawyer. He would have been trained to understand God's law. He would have been trained to apply God's law in a variety of settings. And now up until now, what you need to know is this lawyer would have been the go-to authority in his town for any questions that would come up about the Old Testament. He's the go-to guy, and so here in this forum, they're before a crowd, and they have a very typical debate-type situation where two teachers are dialoguing here, and this religious leader, this lawyer, has a lot at stake in this particular debate because of his prominence in this area. So notice, the lawyer stands up. He greets this new rabbi, Jesus, with the phrase teacher, which at first seems like uh, a greeting of honor. It seems like he's uh, giving him uh, dignity here and respect at first blush, but we know his heart because it says here in the text that he was actually trying to test him. Did you notice that? He's actually setting up a test, and he's tr- he's hoping to entangle Jesus somehow. And 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 so what he's doing is he's he's going to ask Jesus a question. The question is about eternal life. Now, what you need to know is back then when they would have a teaching time like this in a synagogue setting, there was a very prescribed way that the teachers would dialogue with one another. Generally, it would follow this pattern. First, one teacher would ask a very general question. And then second, the the next teacher would give a very general answer. And then third, the, the first teacher, again, would ask a more specific question. And then fourth, the, the next teacher, he would give a more specific answer. And then round and round and round they would go until they got to a very minute part of the law where they could just kind of agree to disagree. General question, general answer, specific question, specific answer. So here we have this lawyer who stands up, asks a very general question. And Jesus is supposed to give a What? General answer. It's okay, you can talk back to me. It's all right this morning. So he's supposed to give a general answer. Notice Jesus doesn't go through the normal pattern of giving a general answer here. No, this rabbi Jesus, who's got this reputation for not playing by the rules, instead of giving a general answer, he decides to answer the question with a question, which is something that Jesus does a lot. Take a look at verse 26. Jesus says, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? And here's how the lawyer responds. Verse 27. He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Now remember the pattern. General question, general answer. The lawyer gave a general answer. Now it is time for Jesus to ask a more specific question. Right? That's not what he does. Once again, Jesus switches it up. Jesus, who has this reputation for bucking the system, instead of giving him another question, Jesus now gives him a very simple answer. Notice verse 28. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. Yep, that's it. Do this and you'll have eternal life. Just do this and you'll be saved. Just love God perfectly with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and just always love your neighbor as yourself. Do this and you will be saved. And now this Pharisaic lawyer is in trouble. And he is in trouble in front of the whole town, in front of the whole community. And the reason is because friends, who can really keep this law perfectly? Who can anybody do exactly what Jesus is saying must be done. Not perfectly, right? So this lawyer has either got to say one of two things. He's either got to say, well, I haven't really done that. And then in front of everybody else, he's going to basically be admitting, I don't have eternal life. Or option two, he could say, yes, I've done that. And everybody in the room is going to know he's lying. And so this guy is in deep Doo doo, and he's in deep doo doo in front of the whole crowd. Am I allowed to say that here? Is that cool? All right, sorry, might have went off the rails there. So Jesus has brought him to this place of desperation, and this place of desperation is where the Lord Jesus brings all of us. This is the place where we become aware of our sin. This is the purpose of the law. It is a pedagogue. It is a tutor. It is to lead us to our need for a savior. This is the place we get to where we say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. This is the place where we first receive God's mercy and love for ourselves, and we need that first. If we're ever going to learn to love others, then we have to first acknowledge that we have to be recipients of God's love for us. 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. The only reason we love at all John says is because he first loved us but in this passage with this lawyer with this Pharisee right here instead of crying out for mercy this teacher becomes puffed up this teacher f- becomes fleshly this teacher becomes self-righteous this teacher wants to justify himself and somehow he's going to try to limit the extent of the law's demands on him and and that's what he's about to do so look carefully at verse 29. It says, but he wanted to justify himself. Notice that word, justify himself. That is what we are all obsessed with. We all want to self-justify. And so this lawyer wants to justify himself, and he asks Jesus what, what, what he says, and who is my neighbor? Do you see what he's done there? He is trying to lessen the law's demands on him by restricting the term neighbor. Another way of asking the question would be, teacher, whom do I not have to love? That's the question. Which groups are the exceptions to this commandment? Who is my neighbor? Now, you should know that in the first century, this was not a new question. They had argued about this question. The rabbis had talked about this for hundreds and hundreds of years, and they had pretty much all agreed. Long before Mister Rogers' neighborhood came along, they already decided who their neighbors were. They had all pretty much agreed that everybody who was a Jew is your neighbor, and anybody who's not a Jew is not your neighbor. That was kind of the consensus, and so that is what Jesus. That's what the, this this Pharisee is hoping that Jesus will say. But how does Jesus respond? Notice. He bucks the system again, and in front of this whole crowd, he tells him a story, a parable. And that leads us to movement two. The story, the well-known story. And by the way, if you're a first-century Jewish person, you love stories. You cannot resist a good story. So let's take a look at it, and pretend you've never heard this before. Here's how it begins, verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, but he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. We'll pause there for a second. Now this road, Jerusalem to Jericho, was a notoriously dangerous road. Uh, The road ran down through rocky desert country. Here's a picture of it, which provided places for robbers to hide out and jump out and attack unsuspecting and defenseless travelers. It was a well-known dangerous road. In fact, they had a nickname for this road. They called it, quote, the Ascent of Blood, unquote. Imagine that. Honey, I'm on my way home tonight from work. Oh, which way are you going? Parkway to 287? No, I'm taking the Ascent of Blood. (laughs) All right. Just be careful. Right? This is downtown Patterson. This is Camden. This is the bad part of Newark. This is the way we're going. We're going through the ascent of blood. When Jesus describes this road and what happens here, you in the audience would have recognized it right away, and what you would have said in your heart is, I knew it. Happens all the time there. Happens all the time there. Now think about this. This is where this famous story occurs on the ascent of blood, and often isn't that where our love is needed the most? As I was talking with Pastor Bob this week, he said, you know, isn't it true that our love is most necessary in those places that are the ascent of blood? In those hard places, in those dangerous places, in those risky places? Like you, I've been greatly concerned about the global events in the last few weeks in Russia and Ukraine. And I was really struck by this picture, just a simple picture of strollers left at a train station for Ukrainian women who are fleeing from the war who might need them as they arrived as refugees for their children. Talk about the ascent of blood. Isn't that where our love shines the brightest? So think about that for a moment before we just continue in the story. Who is it in your life that's on a difficult road, and what would it look like for you to offer a gesture of love? Let's go back to our story. So who, who's on this road from Jerusalem to Jericho? The text simply says... A man. Now, what kind of man is this? Is it a Jewish man? Is it a Gentile? I don't know. We don't know. It doesn't say, and Jesus doesn't want us to know. In fact, I think he has intentionally not identified this man's race as either Jew or Gentile. The way Jesus tells it, you can't identify his position, his ethnicity, anything other than human. And now he's unconscious. He's lying there. Is he dead? This is an interesting sidebar. The rabbis had classified three stages of death. Back then there was number 1 preparing to die, number 2 half dead, and number 3 fully dead stage. How those stages were <laughs> that's what they had. This guy was half dead, whatever that means, half dead. So here's our victim. And we have no idea if he's a what. Neighbor is a great story? Is this not a great story? The tension is building here. Is this, Jesus is so brilliant. Even though you're maybe irritated by this rabbi Jesus at this point in the audience, like he is telling a story that you can't resist. So what happens next? Let's find out. Jesus tells us about three different people who are on this road. First verse 31 describes the first guy. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by On the other side, pass by? Why would a priest pass by? We don't know. Maybe fear, maybe indifference. Some people say maybe ritual purity. Back then, if a priest were to come in contact with a dead body or a non-Jew, actually, he would be ritually unclean for a certain amount of time and unable to serve in the temple. But the problem with that line of reasoning is in this story, it specifically says that the priest was going from Jerusalem to Jericho, away from Jerusalem, which would mean that his shift was over. And so that means his work was done at the temple, and there really isn't an excuse. And Jesus tells us the story this way because everybody listening would know the real reason the priest didn't care for this guy is because he just didn't care. So here's this man, a religious leader like me, a servant of God, a man of the cloth. Probably all kinds of training, ordination, skills. Where was his heart for broken people? Sometimes I make the mistake of thinking having lots of theological information is somehow equivalent to spiritual maturity. That's not necessarily the case. That's not how the New Testament measures spiritual maturity. Mark Dever, who I, I consider him to be a pastor of pastors, he serves in Capitol Hill Baptist Church in, in D.C., and uh, he was speaking to a group of ministers at his church because he, he brings a lot of young pastors there for training and stuff, and he says sometimes we have young people in our church who read really thick books, by like John Piper and, and other uh, huge, and, but, but yet... Though they are so well-read, they are not willing to get up an hour early to give an elderly person a ride to our church. And when I hear things like that, Mark says, I often think, you know, I'm not really sure you're converted. Demons in hell know all about good theology. That that doesn't affect how they act toward other people, though. If you know all about good theology and it doesn't affect how you act toward other people, you're not a Christian. In fact, Mark Dever says it this way. He says, friends, the good news is God changes us, and the evidence we see of that is in how we relate to others in our local church. That's why we must teach Christians to commit to love. Now, of course, there's a place for tough conversations. Of course, there's a place for tough love and speaking the truth in love. And and there's a lot more about that in your workbook, and we'll carefully walk through that together in your groups. But the basic principle here is that our hearts have to be hearts of love. This is what John the Apostle teaches in 1 John 4, 7, and 8. Uh, We read it earlier, but it's, it's good to look at this again. John says this, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God. Now, that's pretty clear. Whoever does not love does not know God. Now, wait a minute. Doesn't know God? John, that seems kind of extreme, bro. I mean, I know this guy. He knows a lot about the Bible. Okay, he's not very loving. But come on, you're saying he doesn't know God? John says, no, he doesn't know God. Well, what about that lady I know? She's a Sunday school teacher. She's like an encyclopedia with Bible knowledge. She knows so much. I know she's tough to be around. Certainly she knows God, right? John says, no, whoever does not love does not know God. Why not? John says, this is the reason. Because God is love. Yeah, he's all those other attributes. He's holy, holy, holy. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. Yeah, but if you miss this one, John says, you're missing a really important thing. God is love. Now remember who wrote this John it's one of the 12 disciples and, and and here's what he's saying Listen I walk with Jesus for 3 years I heard him teach I saw what he did I saw his heart of compassion I I I was with him I I, I this is what I've seen I I know all about the life of Jesus I wrote this book about it the Gospel of John I wrote that verse John 3:16 for God so loved the world I wrote that I saw Jesus every single day for 3 years and I'll never be convinced of anything else God is love how do we learn to love? The answer is by first seeing things through God's eyes. It was the great Jonathan Edwards, the most brilliant philosophical mind to ever come out of the United States of America. Jonathan Edwards said this, the outworking of agape love in my life is the essence of Christian maturity. So this priest, back to the story, so this priest passes by. Then the text gives us Person number two. Person number two, verse 32, says this. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. A Levite was somebody from the tribe of Levi who usually would assist the priests. And really, these two men were probably traveling together. First, the priest is leaving. Priest walks by. Levite sees that. Levite's probably thinking, well, if the priest doesn't care, why should I care? I mean, if I help him now, then what am I saying about the priest who's probably my boss in front of everybody? That's kind of like me saying that my boss did something wrong. That's a lot of trouble I'm going to get into here. I'm just going to not be up for that. I'm going to avoid the whole conflict, and I'm going to walk by on the other side, too. It's just too inconvenient. It was Bob Dylan who wrote this poetic turn of phrase, quote, What good am I if I'm like all the rest? If I just turned away when I see how you're dressed, if I shut myself off so I can't hear you cry, what good am I? What good am I if I know and don't do, if I see and don't say, if I look right through you and I freeze in the moment like the rest who don't try, what good am I? See, these guys should have known better. The prophet Micah tells us in chapter 6, verse 8, he has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly by your God. Yeah. Now, back to the parable. So uh, most parables that Jesus tells, a lot of the parables that Jesus tells have something called shock value. Something that you're unex- like, not expecting, something that comes out of the blue, something that just really is different and... That's what happens here. First, we have a priest go by. Then we have a Levite go by. Who are we expecting for number three? Maybe like a Jewish worshiper. Time for them to go by. Guess who comes next? Verse 33. But a Samaritan came where the man was. A Samaritan. And now you are shocked. Because remember, if you were a first century Jewish person, you didn't like the Samaritans. They were not racially pure. They were not religiously pure. They worshipped at a different temple. There was such animosity between these two groups. I know it's hard for you to imagine a society that's deeply polarized. But <laughs> but back then they had this adversity between groups in... <laughs> I thought it was funny. All right, so here's a quote from the Mishnah. It's a collection of Jewish sayings in the, um, in the first century. Uh, it says, He that eats the bread of the Samaritans is like he who eats the flesh of swine. Uh, here's another quote from the Wisdom of Ben Sirach, which captures the attitude, written about 200 BC. It says this, There are two nations that my soul detests. The third is not a nation at all. The inhabitants of Mount Seir, that's the inhabitants of Esau. Second, the Philistines. And third, the stupid people living at Shechem. Who was that? That's the Samaritans. So the Jews hated the Samaritans, and the Samaritans hated the Jews. It was, you know, totally mutual. And now Jesus has just dumped one right into the middle of our story. So of all people, a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and it says this, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Wow. Two silver coins would be a few hundred dollars. It's a generous gesture. The Samaritan man obviously sacrifices his money. He also sacrificed his time. He gives him medical care. He offers him transportation. He gives this man a ride on his donkey while he walks on the side. And he takes him to this inn. This is an amazing display of love for what? Neighbor. But what's most amazing here is that Jesus is painting the Samaritan as the good guy. Because the Samaritan is the only one in this store being a what? Neighbor. Neighbor. I was listening to Pastor Jim Simbola, who serves at Brooklyn Tabernacle in New York City, and he was telling this story one time about Easter. He said a couple services had gone by. It was Sunday, Easter. A lot of people had come to Christ. It was a wonderful morning of worship. And he said I was sitting on the stage uh, after the service, and there's people kind of praying up front still, and. And as I was sitting on the stage, I I loosened up my tie, and it was a a long morning, and it was a good morning, but he said, I was was tired, and it was was time for me to sit on the stage like he normally would, and just kind of chill after the Easter service. And while he was doing that, while he was catching his breath, he said he looked out to the middle aisle, and like around the fourth or fifth row, like right around there, this guy starts walking toward him. And this guy, he said just had this obvious look. He had like disheveled clothes and he had this dirty, nasty cap on and he was missing some teeth. And uh, he had slept outside of the church on the street in Brooklyn the night before. And he starts approaching Jim and Jim thinks, okay, this guy's going to ask me for money. So he starts reaching for his wallet. And as he's sitting there, the guy's getting closer and, and he said, this smell just started hitting me like a ton of bricks. He said, it was this, Oh my goodness, it was just this mixture of alcohol, human waste, and sweat. Like this, this smell just like came and hit me right in the face as this guy was approaching. And so Jim is there, and he's, and he's reaching for his wallet, and he reaches out, and takes a couple dollars, and he starts handing the guy some money. And as he's reaching out his hand with the money, the guy pushes his hand away and says, I don't want your money. I want that Jesus that you were just preaching about. And Jim said, in just that moment, I had to ask for forgiveness. Because he said, here's this guy who came to me for prayer, but I was the one in need of prayer in that moment. And as he whispered a prayer to God, he said, God, please forgive me. You've brought me this person. They need you. And I just want to send them away with a few dollars. And I'm not really recognizing the love that you have for this person, and I need your mercy on me. And Jim said, as he prayed that quiet prayer in his heart, the Lord all of a sudden, out of nowhere, just gave him this tremendous capacity for love for this man in that moment. And he said, the man kind of came up to me, and and he, he fell into my arms, and his head just rested right here on my shoulder for a few moments, and they just kind of rocked there for a little bit. And Jim said, I heard God kind of whisper something to me in that moment that I've never forgotten. And God said to me, Jim, hey, Jim, you know that smell? He said, if you don't love that smell, I can never use you. God said, that's the way the whole world smells to me. This stinking smell of sin. I sent my son to die for that smell. And you're either going to embrace it and love people who smell like that in my name or I can't use you. And then Jim said a miracle happened. He said suddenly that smell became like the most beautiful perfume I've ever smelled in my entire life. Long story short, the guy went to detox, got clean. Jim actually hired him in the facilities department at the church. Amazing turnaround story. But what happened there was a tremendous lesson of love that he learned and never forgot that's what this world needs god's love i know we're called to speak truth i know we're called to take a stand i get all of that but at the bottom if we don't get this right no one's listening to us and so that brings us to the third movement in the message today the summons to us all after jesus tells this amazing story That has lasted for 2,000 years. Such a beautiful story. He ends it with a final question. Take a look at verse 36. Jesus simply says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? This expert in the law replies, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. So there you have it. So, what do we learn here, and how do we apply this to our 21st century context? How do we understand what God would want us to do as a result of this parable? What we learned, the lesson from the parable is simply this if you have eternal life, you will be characterized by love for neighbor. Love toward others is what it means to be a person who has eternal life, a Christian. In other words, if you're a person who has eternal life, you'll be bound to to be a good neighbor and show love toward others. And so Jesus says to him and to me and to you, go and do likewise. Friends, if we don't get this right, do you realize it doesn't matter what else we do? One more scripture passage. This one comes from the very night before Jesus died on the cross. He, He takes all of his closest followers up to this upper room and he teaches them. Some amazing truths and some new things. And he teaches them what would later become the mark of following him in chapter 13. Take a look with me at verse 34. Jesus says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Wait a minute, Jesus, that's not new. That's from Leviticus. We know that command. Wait, I'm not done yet, Jesus says. I want you to love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Notice that term, by this. This would be the mark of being his disciple. You know, when I, when I come to church in the middle of the week, all the doors are locked. So I have this access card. And this thing is tied to my identity, so it allows me to get into the door. And you probably have something like it, that at, at your workplace. So you have certain access credentials and key cards. You, can, you can't go to the ATM without first putting in your PIN, right, and validating the fact that this is you, Right? That's true with a lot of things in life. And right here, Jesus is saying this. This is how you validate your identity as my follower. If you want to prove that you're really my disciple, that you really have trusted in me, that you know me, that you have a relationship with me, that you're a spiritually mature person, you will be characterized by love for others. This is my mark. Notice that phrase, just as. See that? Now, when Jesus said that, the 12 people in the room knew exactly what he meant. And in that moment, he could have gone around the room. Matthew, you remember when we first met? Yes, sir. Remember what you were doing? Yes, sir. I was a tax collector ripping off our people on behalf of the government. Do you remember what I said to you? Yes, sir, you invited me to follow you and nobody wanted anything to do with me. Remember after that, we went to your house and we celebrated and and I made you into an insider in my inner circle? Yep. Matthew, for the rest of your life, I want you to treat others with the same grace and love that I treated you. Nathaniel. You, you, do you remember, you remember when we first met? Yes, sir, I do. Do you remember what you said, Nathaniel? You remember how you insulted me? Nazareth! Nazareth! Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You remember how you insulted my hometown? Remember how you insulted my family? Remember all that, Nathaniel? Do you remember what happened? Yes, sir, I do. Remember what I did? Yes, sir, you never brought it up. You just invited me to follow you. Nathaniel, for the rest of your life, I want you to extend that same grace and that same love toward everybody you meet. Peter, do you, P- Peter, do you remember when I first told you that I was going to die? Do you remember that you rebuked me in front of everybody? Yes, sir, I remember that. Do you remember how I didn't reject you or put you on the outside? Yes, sir, that's right. No, I did not. I kept you right by my side, Peter. Now, Peter, for the rest of your life, I want you to extend that same grace and that same love toward everyone you meet. Just as I have loved you, you love one another. And if you think I've loved you guys this far, wait until you see what I do tomorrow. Because Jesus is about to show us the greatest act of love in the history of humankind by dying on the cross for the sins of the world so that we might have eternal life and be his followers. So how do we apply this text to our lives, friends? Well, on page 141 of your workbook, there's a a very serious spiritual formation exercise I would encourage you to walk through prayerfully. And it's going to ask you some hard questions. Like, who is it in your life that you're finding difficult to love right now? And what obstacles are in the way? And I'm not talking about enabling sin. And I'm not talking about the fact that we don't have to sometimes say hard things. You know me better than that. But what I'm saying is, what is the purposeful, intentional step of love that God is calling you to take towards that person? What would it look like to live this out? Can you imagine a church full of individuals, men and women, boys and girls, senior citizens, middle-aged people, just trying their best this week to live out this high calling and this commandment from the Lord Jesus? Can you just imagine Let's be that church. Learn to love. or the rest won't matter. As the worship team comes to lead us in one final song, I want to share one closing scripture from 1 Corinthians 13. Using Eugene Peterson's translation called The Message, I think this captures our high calling very well. The Apostle Paul says, And if I speak with human eloquence and angelic ecstasy, but don't have love, I'm nothing but the creaking of a rusty gate, and if I speak God's word with power, revealing all his mysteries and making everything plain as day, and if I have faith that says to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. And if I give everything I own to the poor, and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't have love, I've gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say, what I believe, and what I do, I'm bankrupt. Without love, And Heavenly Father, how grateful we are that you have first loved us, extended your grace and your mercy that is undeserved toward us. And we are so indebted to you for this great love. We love you, Lord, because you first loved us. Now we pray that you might further grow us, mature us, mold us, shape us into this kind of person the kind of person that would reflect the Lord Jesus himself, teach us to love. Remind us of that high calling that we're called to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly by you, God. May we be a church that others see from the outside and simply are amazed and they remark to themselves, see how they love one another. It's for Christ's sake and for his reputation, we pray. Amen.